What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Ebb and Flow Podcast. It's me, ex-NFLer turned yogi, Eben Britton. It's excellent to be with you guys on this magnificent day we have before us. Today's episode of the Ebb and Flow Podcast is brought to you by my brothers and sisters over at Bioptimizers. I tell you guys what, there is no better magnesium product on the market than their magnesium breakthrough. I started taking magnesium during my NFL career at the suggestion of our nutritionist, Anita Null, on the Jaguars. Um, You can actually listen to an episode of the Ebb and Flow podcast with Anita. I love her. She was a very strong influence in my nutritional know-how and understanding. So I owe her a great debt of gratitude. But she suggested long ago that I start taking magnesium. A, for to help with cramping. It's a great aid for um, hydration. I was a heavy sweater. Did a lot of, had many instances of full body cramps. Was hospitalized in college twice for full body cramps. Needing IVs. Needed IVs at least once a week during training camp. My NFL career, usually. So cramping was always a huge issue. Magnesium was a profound remedy for that issue. And so when I started taking it, I also realized how good my sleep improved, how much my sleep improved when I started taking it. Started waking up feeling refreshed, rejuvenated, ready to go, excited about the day. My mind felt clear. My body felt rested. And that was a profound realization. So fast forward 10, 11 years now, I come to meet the people at Bioptimizers. I start to get familiar with their products. And I tell you what, their product, Magnesium Breakthrough, there's nothing like it. There's no other magnesium supplement on the market that combines seven various forms of magnesium, which is important. So this is really a holistic blend of various types of magnesium. So it's hitting your body and your cells from different angles and giving you a a more profound, more complex uh, dose of that magnesium molecule. Very important. So it's fantastic for stress. It's fantastic for sleep. It's great for as a muscle relaxant. You know, you don't realize this, but every time you take an Epsom salt bath, those, those salts are filled with magnesium. They're very rich in magnesium. So you're soaking your body in magnesium. And that's why you feel so relaxed. You're getting it through the skin membrane. So when you take it orally, as a pill, as a powder, whatever it is, in the case of magnesium breakthrough, as a pill, you're getting all of those benefits just soaking into every cell in your being. It's one of the most important molecules, minerals for your total health. It's responsible for over 200 or involved in over 200 processes in the human body. 
And it's just excellent stuff. I live by it. I take it all the time. Over over 80% of the world's population, or at least the American population, is deficient in magnesium. Why do you think we have so much stress, so much fear response, so much poor sleep? Lack of magnesium is one of the issues, and it could be a remedy to that. So I highly recommend it. Click the link in the show notes, magbreakthrough.com forward slash ebb and flow. Use code ebb and flow 10 on checkout to get 10% off your next order. Highly recommend it. All right, enough of that. This episode is a really good one. It's something I'm super passionate about. Um, and I, I'm fascinated by this topic. This is the science of happiness with Dr. Jillian Mandich, uh, a fantastic conversation. We talk about the fundamentals of achieving a sustained state of contentment. What does that look like? Are we supposed to be happy all the time? I think that's one of the pitfalls of the Western material paradigm. I should feel good all the time. It's not really about that. The science of happiness is complex. It's deep. Dr. Jillian has great insight, great knowledge, uh, and she shares that in this conversation. Stoked to share it with you guys. Um, That's about it, y'all. Love to see you on Patreon. Join the Power Tribe. I am now offering ebb and flow coaching sessions. There are packages for one one hour session a month. That's on top of all the bonus content. Or you can uh, pay for two one hour coaching sessions. That's one on one with me to discuss whatever it is you would like. Upgrade your life, mental, physical, spiritual well being. Bounce ideas off of me. Whatever it is you're looking for, I'm here to be of service. And you can find that now on Patreon as well as the monthly group sessions. This Sunday, July 11th at 12 p.m. Pacific, there will be a group yoga and breathwork session live on Zoom. That's about it, folks. We'd love to see you guys there. All of that stuff is in the show notes and more. Lots of love. Enjoy this episode, and I'll see y'all on the flip side. Peace. You have unlocked the eternal link to internal source, the key of imagination, your admission, access to the enlightened dimension, a gateway at the junction of darkness and light. The place at which the chaos of our conditioned frame of mind give way to a life in constant flux, only to be mastered through vigilant discipline. Peaceful times may come, testing times may go. This is the ebb and flow. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Ebb and Flow Podcast. Super stoked for our guest today, Dr. Jillian Manditch. It's so excellent to have you on the pod. Uh, welcome. 
Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you today. Um, you know, I came across your Instagram profile and I was immediately hooked the science of happiness. I'm fascinated by it. Uh, a couple years ago, I was doing another podcast and we had a similar guest on. This guy was a professor at Loyola Marymount and he was studying the science of happiness as well. And I feel like this podcast that I'm doing, The Ebb and Flow, it, it, it very frequently meanders into a cultural exploration because I feel like we're in this spiritual, emotional, mental crisis uh, as a civil, in Western civilization in particular, whatever that means now, that might be the entire world. Um, and I just feel like people are in dire need, you know, people don't really have any clue. And, uh, I guess that's what I hope to dig in deep on today. Um, what is the science of happiness? I know that's a big question, but let me let me tee you up here because I love this post that you had a little while ago. You believe there is no secret to happiness, but there is a science to it. Happiness is not a destination. It's a practice. Happiness is not something that we earn. It's something that we learn. The pursuit of happiness doesn't mean the goal is to be happy all the time. Oh my God. I mean, those are... Preach, preach, lady. Oh, well, you know, a lot of what I've learned and how I even came to study happiness began as, as a personal pursuit. So I started reflecting on my life when I was in grad school. I used to actually study childhood obesity. So my mm. master's degree is actually in child and youth health. And as I moved into my PhD, when I was doing a research study, I would have to use BMI, body mass index, as a cutoff for children to be included in my study. And as I'm sure you know, BMI is calculated with height and weight. And mm. I started thinking because, I mean, I'm sure you can agree and anyone listening that the number on a scale doesn't necessarily dictate health. Mm. It may be an indication, but maybe not, right? Like you can be living in a larger body and be fully healthy and you can not be living in a larger body and be unhealthy. So there's more to that conversation than just how much do you weigh? How tall are you? Let's figure it out if I can help you. And so I went digging into the literature, looking at like, what else can I study? What else can I use in my research to go beyond weight, go beyond a number on a scale? And I was at Pilates one day where like all good things happen, right? Pilates. <laughs> and uh, the woman beside me mentioned like casually that her sister studied sustainable happiness. Mm. And I said to her, I'm like, what's that? And she Love said, that. oh, well, why don't you go home and check it out? And so... I did. And I'm such like a data nerd. So I went deep down the literature <laughs> rabbit hole looking and reading all about happiness. And to be fully honest, I went, I don't know how old it was, like 30 years of my life without ever realizing you could actually study happiness. I didn't mm. actually even know it was a thing. And then as I got into the actual like scientific research, I started reading how like when you compare happy people to unhappy people, Happier people have lower rates of cardiovascular disease. They heal faster from mm. injury. They have stronger immune systems. They tend to make better nutritional choices. They tend to sleep better, both in terms of duration and quality. And like the list goes on and on. And even beyond physical health, when we look at creativity, problem-solving skills, um, relationships, there's so many benefits that come when we are happier. 
And my PhD is actually in health science. And then health promotion is my sort of area of specialization. And I mm. thought, really, when we study obesity, it's more disease management. It's not actually true health promotion, right? Health promotion mm. is looking at what's right and how do we amplify that? How do we learn from the good and get more of that as opposed to treat something a dis-ease in the body or an experience that we want to remedy or fix or change or alter. And so I went sat down with my PhD supervisor and I said, <laughs> I don't want to study ha uh, obesity anymore. I want to study happiness. And she looked at me like I had two heads and I ended up, um, it was a big journey, tacked a year onto my school because I basically had to restart everything. But I haven't looked back because from not only literature perspective, understanding how happiness actually has positive implications for our physical health, for our work, for our marriages, our relationships, our friendships, our, all of that. But even like from a personal perspective, at the same time as I was doing that, I was reflecting on my life. And I was like, okay, like Jill, are you as happy as you possibly could be? And at the time I was going through a divorce, I uh, was sort of reflecting on my life. I, I've done like four yoga teacher trainings over the years. I think I was in like number three at that point. So I was like deep into it and I've been meditating all the time. And I was just like, okay, I have this like existential crisis. And I thought, no, I'm not. And so the next question becomes, okay, well, how do you do something about that? And I thought, well, I'm a researcher. My skills and my ability is in how to ask questions, how to collect data, how to learn, how to study what's going on. And so for me, from both a professional perspective and a personal perspective, to start looking at happiness and to even know, like, it's a very new field in and of itself. Like, I've got to tell you, so many times when I tell somebody I'm a happiness researcher, they kind of like tilt their head. And if I could like draw a thought bubble, I would know it was saying something like, is that a real job? Like, all, sometimes they'll actually ask me that out loud, but if not, I know they're thinking it. <laughs> And it's funny because if I told you I was an obesity researcher or a nutrition researcher or a cancer researcher, nobody would ask what that is or if you have an actual job. But mm. because happiness is so universal, right? We're all chasing it, whether it's on a conscious or a subconscious level, most, if not all of the time. And yet we're not taught how to be happy. Up until about the 1980s, there wasn't any peer-reviewed scientific research on the topic. And mm. so, yes, it's, it's a new field. It's it's an emerging field. Um, but really, when we look, we used to think that we had sort of a set point. So kind of like in a room, if you set your temperature in your room, and then it's like, okay, you know, we're a little bit hot, so we'll turn on the air, temperature go down, and then we're cold, so we'll turn it off, the temperature will go up, but we kind of always stabilize to that temperature. People used to think that's how happiness worked. So something good would happen, and you get a boost, you'd be happier. And then as time goes by, you go back to your baseline and then something challenging would happen and then it would down, but eventually you go back up. And what we know now is that, yes, there's a genetic element to happiness. Absolutely. There's also an environmental element, which I think we can all appreciate in this past year and whatever it's been in this pandemic. And then there's a third piece. And that third piece is significant and meaningful. And that third piece is the part that we have control over. It's our thoughts, our actions, and our behaviors. And what we do know now from the research is that when we focus on that piece of our happiness, not only can we temporarily boost our happiness, but we can actually sustain it at higher levels. So happiness is not just a question of you're born, you know, a happy person or like an Eeyore type person. Each and every one of us, no matter how happy or unhappy we're feeling right now, have the capacity to, just like if you go into the gym, 
and you exercise, or we can't go into gyms here in Toronto right now, but you go outside in your backyard and you swing a kettlebell or whatever, when you exercise, however that looks, <laughs> you get stronger over time, right? And so happiness is kind of the same thing. It's like a muscle. So the more that you do things that make you happy, then what happens is over time, you get stronger, you get happier. And so all of my work focuses on that piece of happiness. So I'm not focused on genetics um, because you can't really change your genetics, maybe gene expression a little bit, but very hard. Uh, environment, I, I mean, you can change it, but difficult. But when we think about what's going on in our head, our thoughts, our actions, and then our behaviors, that's something in terms of what's amenable to change that we each, each and every one of us have this opportunity to do something about that. And to now know that when we do that, we can actually not only increase our, our happiness short term and the byproducts of that, like I talked about, like physical health and all these different things, but also we can build our happiness muscle and it is possible. And I think now knowing that, it's, it's so exciting because we have this opportunity to now go beyond that into, okay, well, how do we do that? What's next? A lot of introspection, a lot of that. And I just think I have the best job in the world. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And it comes through with your energy and your passion for it. And uh, I'm, I mean, I'm totally fascinated by this. Um, so bringing it down to, to, the molecular level is there what are the chemicals responsible for happiness or what chemicals are present when someone is experiencing a state of happiness mm. so as you'll notice pattern when i answer your questions it, there's, there's a wide <laughs> range of things um, uh -huh. but top level when we look at what's going on um you know Things like serotonin, dopamine, right? When when mm -hmm. we post a picture on Instagram, we get a like. It feels good. We get yeah. that boost. We get a dopamine hit, right? It's a reward-related right. hormone. Um, serotonin, uh, we look at how that regulates mood. That's more about taking us out of bad moods than it is, but we can still work with that. Um, but what's really interesting about happiness is that it's universal in terms of like, we didn't mm. have to start this podcast and define what it means. Mm -hmm. And yet... If I ask you to define happiness, or if you're listening right now, I ask you to define happiness or ask myself or anyone else, we would probably each come up with a different definition. And not only that, it even gets more complicated because if I asked you what made you happy when you were 16 versus what makes you happy now versus what's going to make you happy when you're 100, it changes. So it's not like you figure out this magic formula and then you're set for life, right? It's this continuing, evolving process of self-reflection and of, of trying things and of living your life and really continuing to to reflect and to figure out and answer that question. Because like I will say, the number one question that I get asked when I tell somebody I'm a happiness researcher is like, what's the magic pill? Or like what's yeah, the I one was thing? Say that, right? <laughs> like what's the one thing I have to do or buy or get or say in order yeah. to be happy? <laughs> All the time. And like the truth is there's no magic pill. Like there's no right. secret to happiness. There's no one thing. And mm. yet, um, you know, we can use research to kind of point the compass in the right direction. We can learn about what things are highly correlated with happiness, but each and every one of us have sort of a different formula that is an evolving process of what makes us happy. Mm. And so I think when we, when we start to reflect on our life and start to figure out and ask those questions, you know, am I as happy as I possibly could be? What makes us happy? That's a great place to start because nobody can tell you what makes you happy but you. Right. You're yeah. the only one that knows. 
And so I think a lot of the thing, people just want you to hand over a pill. But like if there was a pill, some drug company would be selling it and like you'd be super rich right now, right? Like it's just not a thing. (laughs) Well, they say they are. Yeah. (laughs) We've got like what? Prozac and Xanax Mm -hmm. and all these Mm -hmm. things that that claim to. At the same time, mm -hmm, I will say on that note too, in terms of pharmaceuticals, I get asked about that a lot too. And there's a lot of skills. Like, if you think about happiness like a muscle, something that you have to work at and practice on a regular basis, right? It's, it's kind of like, like, this is how I think about happiness. Like, you would never go to the gym or have a workout and have, like, the best workout of your life and then text me after and be like, hey, Jill, I just had the best workout of my life. I've reached fitness. I'm good. Right, right. <laughs> you know that the next day or two, you're going to have to go and do another workout. It may be good. It may not. Who knows? But it's a practice. Fitness. Yep. You know, health is a practice. It's the same as, you know, nobody would ever drink a green smoothie with like all the superfoods and then be like, I've reached nutritional wellness. I don't have to eat anymore. (laughs) Right? Not a thing. Yes. So part of learning about what happiness is, is changing the lens that we look at happiness through. Mm. So instead of seeing happiness as a destination, as something that we will arrive at one day if X, Y, or Z, and we understand that happiness is a practice. Happiness is something that we have to work at. It's, it's something we have to do on a regular basis. If we want to live a happy life, we have to do things regularly that make us happy. And so when we start to see happiness through that lens, it starts to shift the conversation. Because now, instead of being like some mirage in the future that, you know, because that's not how it works, we start to recognize, okay, well, how can I do things today to make me happy? And then just to quickly circle back to the pharmaceutical thought is, Part of that, you know, we learn and we have some science that can actually help us point us in the right needle. But I think about it like this. You know, if you have to build a house, you need all the things to build a house, right? You need doors, you need windows, you need bricks, you need all the things. And if you don't have any bricks, no matter how many affirmations you do, no matter how much gratitude you practice, you can't build a house without bricks or without windows. Mm. And so there's a time and a place for pharmaceuticals to be able to put all the tools in place. Like if your body is not producing uh, dopamine or the precursor to serotonin or something like that, there is a time and a place. And at the same time, and that's a conversation, you know, if you're unsure to have with your doctor, at the same time, where my work focuses is on a different piece of happiness, and that's our thoughts, our actions, and our behaviors. And so regardless of any of that stuff, to know that each and every one of us have the capacity to do things to strengthen our own happiness muscle I find that very empowering because what that does is it takes happiness from someday, somehow, if X, Y, and Z, and empowers us to realize that we are the co-creators of that and it's available to us right now. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, you're, it's so good. <laughs> Jill, you're, you're killing this. Um, uh, and First of all, I'm curious, what is the actual, is there, how prevalent is that, that someone literally doesn't produce dopamine? That's a hard question to answer Um, because a lot of people don't ever go and get help. So the people that we see are not necessarily representative of that. Um, Uh And at the same time, I think a lot of people 
are having maybe a low level of depression, but at the same time, the question that often comes to my mind is, are you moving your body on a regular basis? We know how powerful movement is. Even like research shows that 10 minutes of walking, you know, can have mood boosting effects that last beyond when you finish your walk. You know, are you sleeping or attempting to get good sleep? Like the basics, nutrition, right? Like what are you eating? How much are you drinking? Are you smoking? What drugs are you doing? Um, Who are the Mm -hmm. people that you're surrounding? What does your environment look like? Um, So it's also muddy in that conversation because a lot of people can't rule out a lot of those things too. And oftentimes, and we see this in research, that pharmacological interventions can be beneficial. And also for a lot of people, so can basic movement. And so mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's, it's muddy, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the reason I bring that up is, you know, I have, I come from a family that has been deeply affected by the disease of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of mental health mm-hmm. stuff in my family, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. I have dealt with massive panic attacks since I was 19 years old, mm-hmm. depression for as long as I can remember. And I've taken every drug that is is available legal and non-legal, you know, uh, prescribed by a doctor and otherwise Mm -hmm. I've done the Xanax. I've done the fucking, uh, the, um, what's the other one? Clonopin, the fucking Ativan, Mm -hmm. all of those things. And honestly, not one of those pills in my experience did anything to put me in a better state than they found me. In fact, I went into a deeper hole mm-hmm. because of those medications. And my remedy has always been movement. What am I eating? You know, if I have a weekend where I eat too many carbs, I guarantee you I wake up on Monday and I'm in a cloud mm-hmm. of darkness. Mm-hmm. You know, it's n- without fail, you know, and that's part of my. That's part of my genetics, I suppose, you know, that's, that's my genetic makeup. So my food is like, it has to be super clean. I have to exercise every day. I know these things about myself. I have to meditate. I have to sweat. I have to, you know, get out in the sunlight and my life has become my practice in that way because otherwise it's just, it's like the resistance, you know, there, the resistance is all, it's like gravity, you know, it's like. Um, there's this energetic pull down that I'm always working. I won't say working against because it's not, it is difficult, you know, it's difficult and it is a challenge. You know, you have to be active and you have to be engaged in your own health and well being and your own happiness, you know? Um, I just got like crazy truth bumps when you said your life is your practice. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because that perspective changes things, but it also gives you some responsibility. So now you're not a passive consumer of life, right? You are taking some responsibility and recognizing Mm -hmm. that we all have, or, you know, each and every one of us within our own life have that to play. But that idea of practice is Mm -hmm. so, so powerful. Do you want to know a fun fact? I'd love to. (laughs) Um, and, and, and I'm Canadian, so this is an American thing. So you'll like this. 
Um, okay. The Declaration of Independence, right? When it was written. Yes. But we, everybody in America had the right, the inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Pursuit of right? happiness, yes. So beautiful. Back when it's Thomas Jefferson, right? <laughs> um, wrote. I think he was one of the guys. Wrote, yeah. That wrote the Declaration of Independence. The word practice doesn't mean what it means today. So, or sorry, the word pursuit, the pursuit of happiness, it, mm. it didn't mean like nowadays pursuit means like to like go out and actively like seek or chase or get, right? right? right. To pursue something or someone. Back then, yes. the word pursuit meant practice. Mm. So, right, life, liberty, and the practice of happiness, because that's what it is. We don't ever get to happiness and we're done. It's just... It's a practice. And when we can yes. shift the lens, like no, I would never go into a yoga studio, get on my mat and at the end be like, okay, <laughs> you know, okay, I was so good in class today. Maybe I was. Um, and then the next day, maybe I sat for eight hours at my computer and my hamstrings were tight and my hip flexors were tight and I'm in a forward fold and it's just not feeling right. I don't judge myself and I'm like, Jillian, you're a bad yogi because you couldn't touch your toes today. Right? <laughs> we don't do that. It's it's a practice. We understand that. And so when we can think about happiness in that same way, it takes away some judgment and it allows it to just be as to, instead mm. of trying to encapsulate it or arrive at it or make it this thing that like we can catch, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you're saying. Um, so the other thing I was going to say earlier or that, you know, you you continue to just uh, um, illustrate these truths. But this is a very Eastern way of viewing life. So how the fuck did the Western mind, how did we become so, you know, like, we're so trapped. I guess we're trapped in this material game which has lent itself to the uh, happiness is found in the things or f happiness is found in the moments. And then when I get there, I'm going to be happy. When I buy that house, I'm going to be happy. When I get that job, I'm going to be happy. And it's like, what about now? What about right now? You know, how did we get into that? Oh. And how do we begin to unravel that? <laughs> oh, this is a big one. And I love that you brought this up because, you know, just to be clear, the conversation that we're having in a lot of my work um, from an academic perspective is very much a, a Western, North American perspective. And what's uh -huh. interesting is if we take a step back and we look globally, um, what in, in, for example, in like Asia, um, what it, it's a different type of culture. We have a very individual culture, right? It's me, it's I. We reward individual performance. We, award, we reward achievement and accomplishment from an individual. If you look across the globe, it's different, right? It's very much a community perspective, right? It's, it's not I, it's we, it's, it's the collective. And happiness is expressed and looks differently. Like, you know, you see happiness looking as peace, contentment. Mm. Whereas here, it looks very much like end zone dance at the Super Bowl, right? A lot of times he's like over the top expressions. And we think that that's what happiness is. And it's messy here. And, and there's a lot of causes. You look at like marketing and what we're told happiness yes. is supposed to be. And, and part of that becomes even more complicated because, you know, even though we all want to be happy, 
I mean, I never learned how to be happy in school. I just learned math and science and geography and history. And so I wasn't taught. So if we're not taught, and I mean, back then we probably didn't even know to teach that. Um, if we're not taught and then just sort of passively, we see marketing, we see movies, we see TV, and we think that that's happiness, then it starts to mud things in our mind. And mm. and so there's there's that piece. And that, like I said, there's that cultural dimension of it as well, where, you know, across the world, we see different cultures, different countries, different people defining happiness differently, uh, expressing happiness differently, figuring out things that make them happy that are more individualized focused, right? Me in North America, it makes me happy when I versus, you know, going across the pond and it's, you know, when we do this or it's a community or a collective or when I'm helping someone or that kind of thing. So, mm. you know, it very much a lot of what us in North America think about happiness comes from that perspective. And I think that if that's where we stop the conversation, then we are missing so much of that conversation. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, about the I versus we. Mm -hmm. I in, well, in illness. There's an I in illness and a we in wellness. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's so much good stuff here. I'm just uh, sort of settling into what question I want to ask next. Um, if you wanted to define happiness from an academic point of view, what does that look like? Because for when you asked the question earlier, because uh, you know, and, and that resonates as so true to me. You ask ten people what happiness is, you're going to get ten different answers, etc. And then you brought up someone in the East. Happiness might look like peace or contentment, and that's very much what I feel. If I had to, if I had to narrow down what happiness is for me, in some sort of tangible example, it would be like my wife asking me to do something for her or my daughter, you know, giving me a hug. Like those are some tangible things that I could think would, would trigger like a pure happiness response. But overall to me, happiness is peace, contentment. Um, and maybe another question for you, I guess, first answer, what is the academic definition of happiness? And then I'm curious do you make a distinction between joy and happiness? So I put on my academic hat and I talk about it. the yes. definition. So there's a lot of different definitions to be very in the academic literature. And there's a lot of debate um, among researchers, you know, um, especially because people come from different fields, different specializations. You know, what is it? The definition that I use, because when you do a research study, at the beginning of a study, you have to have operational definitions for all the terms that you're using in your study, right? You have to describe exactly what yeah. it is that you're describing. This is part of the scientific method and you have to. So when I was going through the definition that I most connected with, and it's commonly cited in the literature actually comes from Dr. Sonia Lubomirsky, who's actually out in California. She's from California. Um, mm. And the definition is the experience of joy, contentment, and positive well-being combined with a sense that one's life is good, meaningful and worthwhile. 
So it's kind of two pieces, mm-hmm. right? The experience of joy, contentment, and positive well-being. So it could be any of those, right? It could be elation. It could be, you know, bliss. It could be walking out of a meditation class on a cloud. It could be any of those things. But then there's this other half with, um, you know, with with sort of a deeper piece, right? When we look at not just in the moment, but the sense that one's life is good, meaningful, and worthwhile. And we look and having mm. goals and purpose um, is often a key piece in terms of somebody's happiness, right? You mentioned you had a daughter, you know, I'm sure you get a lot of satisfaction from raising a human, right? It gives you purpose in yeah. a lot of ways, a lot of frustration probably too. Um, but you get a lot of, of satisfaction from that. Yeah, it's the whole thing. Yes. <laughs> and yes. so that is kind of the definition that I use. Um, one that's often used a lot um, uh, is the joy that you feel when you're moving towards your potential. Mm. And like at that. first I kind of like that and I still kind of do. But the challenge that I run into is that I do Moving a lot of towards. research with undergraduate university students. Mm. They have no idea what their potential is. You know, I, right, right. I, I taught at, at Western at the university I was at for four years. And the, one of the classes I taught was a first year class. I had 500 students in my class. And I would look at these and I would talk to my students and they had, I saw so much potential in them, but they had no idea. So how can happiness be the joy that you feel when you move towards your potential if you don't know what it is? And so that's Mm. one of the reasons that I use that definition because it sort of, it gives it two pieces and the two pieces Mm -hmm. have a lot of range in terms of how that looks. And so I I think that that's, that's a key piece too, because the other thing is there's, there's that temporary in the moment hit that like pleasure sort of that hedonic version of mm. happiness, right? The that's mm. the chocolate cake, that's the sex, that's the um, you know, the mm-hmm. in the moment, those dopamine hits. But then there's also that sort of eudaimonic where it's it's more encapsulating of a bigger picture of life, going beyond just in the moment, you know, but what am I doing? Why am I here? How am I contributing? Whatever those questions are, what is my purpose? What is my passion? All of those questions and I, from a personal perspective, think that that's a very important part of that conversation. And it can't just stop at that. In the moment, I feel happy because life goes beyond that moment. And, you know, when we start to take a step back and and look at the bigger picture, I think sometimes we start to reappraise some of those things um, that we think make us happy. And what's really interesting, fun fact number two for the day, (laughs) is that, so, okay, Right, right now on a scale of one to 10 with like one being like you're super not happy to 10 being like you're super happy, the happiest you've ever been. How happy are you? Not to put you on the spot, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> no judgment, just I'd noticing. Say, I mean, I'm 7.58. Okay, cool. No judgment, right? It's just awareness. So yeah. If I was then, and I get asked this question a lot, Jillian, how do you measure happiness, right? And so I will often use a lot of validated tools, like, for example, one called the Oxford Happiness Inventory or the Mm. Subjective Happiness Scale. And so I'll take my fancy tool, which is a questionnaire, with a whole bunch of questions, and then I'll score it after and I'll get a number. And that's how we do it in research. And Mm. so the number, if I was to administer one of those questionnaires to you right now and to score you, chances are the number that I got would be pretty close to what you just told me. Because mm-hmm. as humans, what we see from research is that we're actually pretty good 
at self-reporting our own happiness, at figuring out how happy we are. But what we also know from research is that we are not good at figuring out what it is that makes us happy. So we can mm. figure out how happy we are, but we often think it's like the big shiny moments, right? It's the graduations, it's the birthday parties, it's the new house, it's the new car, it's the marriage, it's the divorce, whatever, those big moments. But what we know from research is that we actually, we think those things make us happy, but what actually adds up to a happy life is the sum of small joys throughout the day. It's yes. a burst in the morning, a little boost here, a little boost there that cumulatively adds up to a much happier life. And so mm. along those lines, sort of the extrapolation of that thought, um, and this is actually something I was really surprised to learn because when I first started studying happiness, you know, we chatted about this earlier from a personal perspective, I wanted to figure out how to be happy all the time. I was like, I don't mm. like feeling anxious. I don't like feeling depressed. I don't like feeling stressed. So I'm a researcher. I want to figure out how to get rid of all those challenging emotions. And I just want to be happy all the time. So let's figure that out. And mm -hmm. what I quickly learned is that the goal in life is not to be happy all the time. And, you know, I'm a happiness mm -hmm. researcher and I'm not happy all the time. And I don't wish to be happy all the time. And I don't wish for you to be happy all the time. And for you listening, I don't wish for that because in terms of healthy psychological functioning, we actually need the full palette of human emotions in terms of healthy <laughs> psychological functioning. And so... When we can start to understand that, and there's actually research, they call it like the dark side of happiness. Uh, and so those people, so people that sort of put their blinders on and they say, you know, I want to be happy all the time. That's their goal. Those people are actually less happy sure. than other people. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it's like, well, why is that? But it's because they, it's impossible to be happy all the time. So if you're setting that as your metric, as your ruler... You're never going to get there because it's impossible. And so now every day you're falling short of your goal. And so you may actually be harder yes. on yourself. So yes. part of this is, is taking the pressure off of ourselves if we're not feeling happy. And mm. it's really becomes then a matter of feeling whatever we're feeling, feeling it fully, not bottling it up, not muting it through, you know, distracting ourselves with whatever it is, sex, drugs, or rock and roll, whatever we want to distract ourselves with. It's about feeling it fully. And then mm. as we sort of yes. start to grow our happiness muscle, right? Like I talked about, we, we practice things. We create those small bursts of joy. Over time, our muscle gets stronger. And so what happens is our highs get higher and our lows get higher. So it's not a question of eliminating the lows. It's just that over time, as we get stronger, they get higher too. And we don't marinate in those challenging emotions for weeks or months or years. But sometimes... Mm. Some of those more challenging emotions, and I deliberately use that word to describe it. I don't say negative or positive um, yeah. because I don't think that emotions are necessarily negative or positive, right? Stress right. can be a good thing. Yes. Anxiety can be a good thing if you're not doing, if you're doing something out of alignment or out of integrity, right? So it's not inherently that mm -hmm. feelings are good or bad, but some of them are more challenging. Um, but part of life is doing hard things. And mm. a lot of growth comes from going through hard things and not that we would necessarily choose them all the time, but it's part of being a human. So then the question becomes, okay, well, how do I equip myself in the best possible way? How do I take care of my, my body and my mind so that I can build my happiness muscle and I can move through whatever life throws at me um, in a resilient way, in a way where we're learning and we're developing more self-awareness and self-confidence and resiliency and capacity to be able to feel all of those challenging things and to be able 
to go through them instead of bottling them up or pushing them away. Oh, God. <laughs> right? You're speaking my language, Jill. You're <laughs> speaking my fucking language here. <laughs> um, oh, it's awesome. It's so good. It's so rich. This is just, this is the epitome of what I'm always talking about. Um, but here's the thing. This is why the work that you do is so important because people don't have these conversations. I spend the majority of my day talking about this and it's brand new information for most people, either because they've never heard it or they've never even actually stopped to think about it. And mm. that is step one, right? Awareness is the first step. You can't change a behavior. You can't change what you don't yes. know. And so I think a lot of where I see these conversations going or we're talking right now, it's, it's about opening our perspective, normalizing a lot of those conversations and re rethinking or relearning a lot of what has been imprinted in us, um, a lot of it culturally from our life experiences and sort of rewriting that script and becoming, instead of being passive consumers of life, becoming an active participant in co-creating our life. Mm. That's so important, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Getting out of the victim state and taking accountability for your life. Mm -hmm. That's been a big one for me. Um, mm. I shared this on a podcast that came out last week about this experience I had with my wife where for the first time ever in my life and in our relationship, I expressed to her what I needed. And it was fucking like I wanted to throw up. And I, you know, and it was... um it was a really heavy conversation we were having. I was really angry at her and I wanted to be angry at her. Like I wanted to hold on to, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm fucking angry at you. It's your fault. And then all of a sudden, like I wanted to run out of the room. I wanted to fucking go anywhere else. And all of a sudden I just started saying what I needed. And it was amazing for me learning this about myself, how difficult it was for me to express what I needed to my wife, to the person I'm most intimate with mm -hmm. or supposed to be the most intimate with in all my relationships of my life. And here I am for the first time ever expressing to her which, what I need. And uh, I expressed it to her. She burst into tears. I'm in tears. We hugged like the anger rushed away. And I realized through that experience that, you know, I was living in this victim state. I was living in this state of victimhood because I wasn't, I was going, yeah, well, it's their fault. That's why I feel the way I do. And it really turned this thing for me. I was like, man, what if we stop thinking about all the external bullshit that's inhibiting us? from doing or being whatever it is we think we're supposed to be doing or being and what if we just get right to the bottom of what do i need here what do i want and fucking do that focus on that and that takes you out of this victimhood thing which is so disempowering and it puts you into this state of accountability and, and self-empowerment and um that's such a big thing you know, and, and that's kind of, that's transcended, you know, a lot of what you were talking about, 
because uh, as you were talking earlier, I was thinking about the the multidimensional aspects to all of this, mm-hmm. how, you know, you might get into this state where you think, oh, well, I'm supposed to be happy all the time, but you, that's impossible in, in the ebbs and flows of human life. <laughs> nice time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you're going to experience the the gamut of human emotions and energies. And there's just as there's light, there's darkness, the yin and yang, it's all positive and negative. It's all there to create this one thing that we are a part of. Um, and I was thinking about how, you know, that inner, that very deep level of that, where these things come up every day, anger, sadness, grief, anxiety, whatever it might be. And to not do the thing where you're disallowing yourself from having the experience of feeling whatever emotion it is that comes up and just allowing yourself to be in that, that's been so powerful for me in my practice of, because when we talk about happiness, I think from a Western standpoint, you think happiness is like this golden orb of human experience that's kind of somewhere out there on the horizon. Mm -hmm. But to me, when I've in my, you know, over the course of my life, becoming a heavy meditator and all the breath work and, you know, I'm a yogi. I've been one since I was like (laughs) 11 or something when my mom started dragging my brother to yoga classes. And I just, you know, inherently fell in love with it because it made sense and it put me in deep touch with myself. And that's always been a savior for me. Um, You know, it's like, oh, man, everything that comes up, everything is a lesson, like everything is a messenger, you know, and no matter what it is, shame, guilt, sadness, anger, I deal with a lot of anger. I think it's it's lineage stuff, it's my parents, it's, you know, being a large man, you know, who's filled with testosterone, testosterone <laughs> and all kinds of things and past lives as warrior, you know, mm-hmm. all the stuff. Like, it's so multidimensional. I deal with a lot of anger. But what I've realized is it's such a powerful teacher. You know, because now I don't have to be sucked into the anger and I can go, wow, what is this? What do I get to learn about myself through this experience of having this thing come up, you know? Um, and I think what you said is, is the, is how it begins to be unraveled. It's the bringing awareness to it. You know, you shine the light on the thing in the dark room and now we all know where it is and what it is. And now we can do something about it. Yeah. It's like Joseph Campbell, right? The cave you fear to enter holds a treasure that you seek, right? I love that. I love that. Yeah. And I love what you were just sharing because we don't have these conversations day to day and you're modeling what you're going through. But it's like, you know, the Marianne Williamson quote, like, right, our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate, but as we let our light shine, we unconsciously let other, give other people permission to do the same. And I Mm. think part of the work right now for each and every one of us is to go into those places, to do the work, is to not see anger as a, as a bad thing, but everything that we're doing is signals. Like emotions aren't inherently good or bad, they're signals. Something's yes. going great, 
we've got work to do, we need to say something, we're ignoring something, we're not fully expressing, whatever it is, that's what they are. They're messengers, they're messages, they're signals. They're not good or bad. And so when we can start to to show up and to be honest and vulnerable and to be in that and say, okay, I'm feeling anger right now, but instead of judging ourselves for it, or instead of letting it control us or us control it, allowing it to be and to unpack mm. that, right? Like, where is that coming from? What am I feeling? What are, do you have a dog? Yeah, sorry, uh, I have two. What kind? <laughs> Uh, that was Luna. She's the German Shepherd Husky. Oh, I grew up with a Shepherd Husky. Kita. Oh, I love yeah. that. Yeah, she's beautiful. Aww. She's an angel and she's the protector of the house. And then there's Bear who's at my feet. He's a German Shepherd Malamute oh. mix and he's massive. Oh, that's amazing. And could, he could care less if somebody's <laughs> approaching the house. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> so yeah, sorry about that. No, but yes. Amazing. Yes. Pets are um, good for happiness. Oh, yeah. Big time. <laughs> yeah, right? Big time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, I wanted to hit something. Uh, there's so uh, It's all so good, honestly. But last night, um, I was watching a Dateline. Mm-hmm. I love murder mysteries. I don't know. It's yeah, one of my It's one of my vices, I guess. I'm, I'm super interested in human behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and this episode was about this prison break. And basically this woman who was like lifetime well-to-do, like family woman, housewife, mom, actually like a former teacher, and then like just like a community gold star person. She started this actually a uh uh, a dog training program at a prison okay (laughs) so (laughs) she of course she ends up falling in love with an inmate and uh whether or not she got manipulated by him that's sort of a side point but um she helps this guy escape Mm -hmm. And it's super, it was really interesting. Like he over, over the course of six months or something, he lost 25 pounds so that he could fit into one of the dog cages. And then she drove off the prison and they spent like two weeks on the run. And she was in love with this guy. Like she fell in love with him and she had, she was married and had a couple sons and her sons were adults. She had beaten thyroid cancer and her marriage was sort of falling apart um, at the time of her deciding to do this thing and they had her on to interview her and the woman Andrea Canning I love Andrea God bless her she does a great job on Dateline Um, but I'm listening to her ask this woman questions about the whole ordeal right And I'm thinking to myself, my God, this is how this cultural programming is created. Because she was, it was a total, it was a complete shaming. It was like, what were you thinking? You had a family. You could have gotten divorced at X, Y, and Z. Did you think about anyone but yourself? And here I am going, okay, this is a woman who is married. Now, 
the husband has a massive amount of responsibility in this situation to make his wife feel so invisible at home that she feels the need to go and fall in love or her soul or heart, her heart is just dying for connection and she finds it in this inmate, you know. And second of all, I'm thinking to myself, you know, we all have these such interesting paths to walk. Mm-hmm. And looking at it from that perspective, I'm watching Andrea Canning sort of grill this poor woman. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, it's so interesting when you turn the corner and you go, when you're really just following spirit, you're following the ebbs and flows, the, the wave of the universe. I don't normally say ebb and flow that often. I was going to say, really, you've got the best name for your podcast. (laughs) It sort of makes sense. It's really good. Uh, uh, But, you know, I'm like, you're grilling this woman about just following her heart and doing what she thought was best for herself at the time. And I loved her. I give her so much credit because... Uh, Andrea Cannon goes like, well, you just totally blew your life up. And the woman goes, well, yeah, at the time I felt like I really needed to blow my life up, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself just through this whole thing, it, it was such a good example of the, the cultural conundrum of how our language affects the way we view the world. And, you know, it was like this woman was dying for connection she was dying for adventure excitement energy in her life and she did the thing that she felt was best for her in the moment yeah it's super extreme i'm not saying like you know go rescue a a prison inmate who's in there for life for murdering somebody obviously but um you know it was just a fascinating look at wow look at how on a you know massively distributed television show and this is across the board, yeah. like you said. It's in all advertising. Yeah. It's in literally every single thing we watch. Mm-hmm. And because it was just being painted as so much negatives, and I'm going, you know, I don't see any negatives. I just see a person living their life to the best of their ability. And there was a lot of external things that forced her, sort of funneled her into this situation. Um, and yet here we are. With our cultural lens, we like to just, you know, grill people. We like to put people down. We like to say how this is right and wrong, you know. And uh, that's such a, in in regards to bringing it back to this conversation, that's such the antithesis of sustained happiness, isn't it? Yeah, mic drop. <laughs> no, it's true. Like, yes, because so often, and I think we don't even necessarily realize that we're doing it a lot because I do feel like part of the work right now is to wake up instead uh-huh. of being robots, right? That's sort of going through the motions of life as opposed to being an active participant in your life. Um, but then we, we live in our little bubble and we project what our ideal is onto somebody else, which one, did we even stop to question if that's right? And then two, it's completely unfair to look at somebody else that hasn't walked in your shoes, hasn't gone through what you did, hasn't experienced what you have, and to judge. And a Mm. lot of unhappiness comes from judgment, right? Whether it's judgment of self, right? Like social comparison, whether it's scrolling Instagram and seeing somebody else and judging yourself, whether it's 
judging your partner, your friends, uh, yourself. And so like this idea of self-compassion, like self-compassion and happiness are, are highly correlated. And I mm. don't think we are kind enough to ourselves. And we set the precedent for how other people treat us based on the example that we show of how we treat ourselves, whether we realize yes. it or not. And, you know, I often think, and, and I'll talk about this uh, a lot, is like if we took like a mic and stuck it in our head and people heard the self-talk <laughs> that we were saying and like out, we would never speak those words to anybody else, right? But, but we're so yes. hard on ourselves, so many of us. And a lot of what happens in life happens when on a subconscious way, you know, like, I, was, I got married when I was 25. I was young. I was such a baby. And then as <laughs> life goes, I start, you know, really doing a lot of personal development, self-development, attending yoga. I started getting into my body. And then I realized I'm not where I want to be. So what do you do? Mm. Do you continue, A, on that course with the, you know, the, I had the perfect thing, like white picket fence, perfect, like everything. Or do you do what makes you happy? And it takes courage mm. to have those conversations with yourself, with other people, there are repercussions and consequences, which may not be easy, but life isn't easy. Mm. So it's really asking those questions, like what makes us happy, but being honest with ourselves. I think part of the challenge too, is that so often we are not honest with ourselves, And sometimes it's, it's even not like we may think we are, when we create the story around that. But when we start to unpack, like you talked about meditating earlier, right? I think that when you get quiet, that is one of the most powerful ways to really start to tap in and to tune in because when there's so much noise, we can't mm. hear and we don't yeah. know and we don't spend that time with ourselves. And so a lot, when we look at things that are highly correlated with happiness, kindness, self-compassion, self-respect, self-esteem, self-worth, these are all parts of the equation too that are up to us. And yet when we think about happiness, we think, you know, X amount of dollars in the bank, X car, X house, X, you know, size, whatever. Um, and that's not it. But we really have sort of lost in a lot of ways the compass that we're using to navigate where we want to go. And so I think a lot of the work, to your point around that, is one, removing the judgment, tuning in, mm. and having that trust to let things unfold for you. And even if it's scary and hard, that doesn't mean bad, Right scary and hard and yep. difficult and challenging, blowing up your life so that you can create something else that you may actually want or maybe more right for you, you know, in the moment may be very difficult that. and people may judge you for it, but that's their stuff. That's not yours. Right. Um, so just to clarify, mm -hmm. does sustained happiness have anything to do with doing what another person tells you to do or what the culture tells you to do? So... There's sometimes an incongruency, right? Because what culture dictates versus what we may actually feel may not line up, right? Especially when we look at in, in North America, our culture, right? What does it tell us? We need to be hot and we need to be like, you know, perfect in every way and we need to do all these things. But really, when we unpack that, that may not be how we feel. And so I think that a lot of work in happiness is unlearning what we didn't realize we had taken on mm. and starting to yes. unpack that and, and to do the work. Like, like you said earlier about, you know, you, you told your wife what you needed and how mm. many years did it take for you to say out loud to the person in the world 
that is the safest space that you have, the most trust that you have. And you're somebody that does the work. And so, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so yes. like, oh, we all need to add, take a it big exhale and just have some like compassion for ourselves that it's a journey and it's an iteration and there's layers, right? And and I think one of the best things we can do is treat ourselves the, the best way we know how right now because we model that for other people. Hmm. And by doing that, by doing those things, by showing up, by having you share what you shared in a, you know, a public place on a podcast, there are people that are healing, hearing that, healing from that and hearing that. And it's, it's a light bulb because, you know, oftentimes it's like, you know, when you sort of, you have these like aha moments and you're like, that was right in front of me. How did I not hear that? Mm-hmm. And, and even sometimes it's like cliches, like, you know, that like saying on the door, like home is where the heart is. I always mm-hmm. was like, oh my God, that's like so cute for a country house. And then <laughs> as I started going through, one day I was, I was having like, a, like an energy treatment and he said that and I was feeling very ungrounded. And then uh-huh. I thought, wait a second, I'm home when I'm in my heart. Home yes. is where the heart is. <laughs> like that's a thing, but it didn't land. And so sometimes we don't, we have to get to where we have to go through the journey to to hear the things because we may hear the message, but if we're not ready to receive it at that point, that's part of the process too. And that's part of the journey. And that's part of the challenge and the agony and the ecstasy of life mm. is, is like going through all of that, but showing up for it and doing the work and not hiding from it, you know? Mm. Yeah, totally. It's so funny you say that. Cause I had the, I had an epiphany about that same saying, no way. literally like, yeah, like three weeks ago. <laughs> home is where the heart is. I was like, oh, fuck. That's about, like you said, when you're in your heart, you're home. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> it's not just a this... bumper sticker. Yeah, oh my God. This movie, um... <sighs> it's so weird. Uh, from my childhood... Or semi, you know, my young, my earlier, I don't know, adult, what, what the fuck am I talking about? But League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, there's this character. I think he's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And when he turns into the monster version of himself, he's gigantic and scary. But he also speaks with this like British accent. And he would say, home is where the heart is. That is what they say. And that always stuck with me. And then literally like three weeks ago, I swear, I don't even know what I was doing. And all of a sudden it came into me, home is where the heart is. And I was like, oh shit. I've always been thinking it the other way around. Yeah, me too. You know? Yeah. Um, That's so funny you say that. Uh, but then it lands and truth is truth yes. regardless of the messenger, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Truth is truth. Absolutely. 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 That's what I talk about a lot. You know, it's like, cause in this day and age, there's so much bullshit flying through the airwaves, mm-hmm. you know, and really at the end of the day, the only thing we can count on is this inner truth, this thing that's coming out from inside of us mm-hmm. that we can't explain that if you spend enough time tapping in which I think has a lot to do with getting quiet, mm-hmm. some sort of meditation practice, mm-hmm. breathing. Yeah. You can tune into it. 
you know, and it's, to me, that's God, you know, that's, that's what God is. Um, so you're the founder of, I want to say it right. It's a mouthful. The founder of (laughs) International Happiness Institute of Health Science Research. What do you guys do there? So, um, Okay, first of all, I don't even know how to follow what you just said. Like, <laughs> um, so yeah. good, so good. Um, what happened was when I was in, I was on the traditional academic path. You get a PhD, you become tenured, you teach at university. Mm. I taught at a university for four years and it, it wasn't right for me. And so mm. um, I started doing a lot of media. I'm on TV a lot here in Canada talking about happiness. Um, and... Then because of that, companies started approaching me and saying, hey, can you come help us? What can we learn? So my company, we do a lot of private consulting. So we'll go into different companies, do whether it's online education, doing research. But one of the things that I'm most passionate about is research. I realize this. Mm. I love to teach. Teaching is one of my favorite things. And I realize that teaching doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be in the walls of a university classroom, right? Mm-hmm. Teaching can be through a television in somebody's living room while they're watching something teaching me talking on a podcast so I satisfy that part of what's most important to me in so many ways but research is another piece for me that I'm just I'm such a curious person and if you ask any of my friends they will tell you that I ask like an annoyingly large amount of questions like I'm such a curious Mm. person like I always want to ask things and, and know things and try to figure things out and so part of the work in my company is we work either with with different companies or um we actually did a big study last year and listen to this so in January and February, a colleague of mine, Dr. Ramit Dillon, and I did a study. We partnered with the Canadian Mental Health Association. So it's a very large mental health um, organization in Canada. And we looked at happiness in the workplace in January and February of 2020. And March oh 20th is the International Day of Happiness. And so <laughs> here in, in Toronto, I think it was like the 16th or the 17th of March is when we had our like first like lockdown, like coro- like yeah. the whole thing. And I had like booked every single media outlet in Canada on the 20th, like the biggest day. And I call my, she's a colleague, but she's also one of my best friends. And I'm like, can I swear on this podcast? Of course. Okay. I do <laughs> it's like, time. what the fuck are we going to do? <laughs> we are talking about happiness. Nobody's happy, and we're talking about the workplace, but nobody has a workplace because we're all on lockdown. Oh my god! What do I do? <laughs> so we ended up having to cancel everything because we're like, this is not a relevant, nor is it a helpful conversation at this point. Um, and so then we kind of went through everything, and I was like, oh, what a waste! And then as things unfolded, I thought, no wait, the beauty of research is that it's just data; it's just information. Mm. And we have information of where over 1,100 Canadians from across the country were right before the pandemic. And it Mm. wasn't good then. So Mm. now we're going to do a second follow-up data point once things go back to quote-unquote normal, whatever you want to call it. Um, And so a lot of the work that I do uh, is really about learning and asking questions and being curious and trying to help move the conversation forward, to move the needle forward, to help each and every one of us start our own personal journey towards happiness. And what I can do as a researcher is not tell you what you need to know to be happy. But what I can do is I can offer different tools and strategies of things that are effective for a lot of people. And what that can do 
is it can give you a starting place to try different things, right? Some people practice gratitude and that makes them really happy. My brother, you know, he's Mr. Like hardcore business. Like if I told him to practice gratitude, he would not have any <laughs> things to say to me, but I could what tell him fuck? to go for a walk, right? Like, so there's different things. And so, um, you know, I really see my work and all the work that my company does is really helping people to live happier and healthier lives. And by applying uh, rigorous scientific research, by collecting data, by learning more, by adding to the conversation, we're all helping to move the needle forward, both on an individual level, um, but also on a collective level, right? We're better together. And the research out of Harvard actually found that our happiness spreads three degrees from us. So a lot of times mm. people say to me, it's a really selfish thing. Like, I don't want to be selfish because I don't want to focus on my own happiness. You know, I, I need to take care of other people. I've got my kids. I've got my, my partner. I've got my whatever. But really, when we actually look at the research, focusing on our happiness is one of the most selfless things that we can do. Because when we're in a better place, we can't give what we don't have, first of all. Second of all, when we're in a good place, like, you know what it's like to meet somebody and they are happy and they are smiling and you leave and you feel energized by them. And then we also know what it's like on the other side to meet somebody and you leave and you are so drained and you feel like exhausted. And so not only does how we show up in the world affect us from like a physical perspective, like we talked about at the beginning, but it affects the people what we meet, but it also affects the people that they meet. And I think right mm. now, especially when we have so much going on in the world that, you know, is going on, one of the things that I keep asking myself is, okay, well, how do I show up? Because... I can't change a lot of what's going on, but I can focus on myself. And when I focus on my happiness, when I do those things, I'm modeling that for other people. And I'm also touching the people that I meet and the people that they meet. And the ripple of that, the, the halo of that, the butterfly effect of that, whatever you want to call it, it may seem, you know, very trivial or fluffy. And at the same time, a lot of people say those exact things about happiness. And yet we know that happiness is not this trivial, fluffy thing. It actually has major consequences for our physical health, our mental health, our work, every part of our life. And so when we can do our, give ourselves that gift of being able to, to take care of ourselves, the effect of that really does go far beyond us. And so we think about, you know, when the Buddha says, like, be the change you wish to see in the world. Mm. That's one of the, that's where I start. You know, I, I, you start with yourself, right? It starts with you. And, and it spreads. And so that's kind of um, a really long-winded answer of saying what we do is we, we take research and we help people so that they can do that in their life. <laughs> no, it's awesome. It's so, it's so good. I, I believe that a thousand percent. I've seen it myself, what you said. I mean, the ripple effect of your energy goes far beyond what you could possibly mm -hmm. even imagine, you know. Um, and I love that. And I think it's so true. I see it more and more all the time. Mm -hmm. It's like, Eb, yeah, it looks like shit out there, but Hey, I've still got a lot of inner work to do here. Mm -hmm. And the, the better I can make myself, the, you know, the more empowered, the more light, the more functioning from a high vibration I can be, that's going to do wonders in the world. You know, that's going to do the thing that you're hoping is going to happen. Um, so I love that. I think it's awesome what you're doing. I'm so. Ditto. Right back at you. Thank you. I'm super grateful to have had this, spent this time with you. Mm -hmm. um, so 
I would love to have you on again to and, talk uh, more about this. Um, so we could talk for a really long time. <laughs> yeah, I know. We could talk. We could just talk and talk. I'm sure. <laughs> um, why don't you let everybody know where they can find you and uh, all of that good stuff? Sure. So my website is actually a really good hub. It has links to all the things. Um, and it's just my name. So it's Jillian Mandich and it's Jillian with a G. So G-I-L-L-I-A-N-M-A-N-D-I-C-H.com. My social on all the socials, except for TikTok, I haven't gone there yet, is at Jillian Mandich. So um, that's where I live. Amazing. I'll have all that in the show notes for sure. Dr. Jill, thank you so much for your time, your energy, your wisdom, your insight. It's, it's awesome. Uh, I think everybody, I, I got a lot out of it. I hope everybody got as much out of it as I did. Um, all right, y'all. Thank you so much, Dr. Jill. Hold on a second. Don't go anywhere. Um, that's about it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much, as always, for listening and supporting me in this podcast. Till next time, I'll see you guys on the flip side. Peace.